with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. I got nothing this week. We're just gonna we're just gonna delve into it. See what shit going on. <laughs> I can't be witty and pithy. Um, hi guys, welcome back. Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from uh, North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College, and we have our senior legal analyst with us finally <laughs> yes. again. Tom Cavanaugh is with us, which is great. Also from North Central College. How's it going? Great to be back. We've remade the Supreme Court since last I sat with you. That's right. Uh, we won. Yeah. We, we won. <laughs> we won so hard. Oh, my God. Before we get into all that and caravans and people getting dismembered and body doubles and various other weird things, if you guys have questions about the podcast, comments, beer suggestions, uh, want to see what we're up to uh, on a daily basis because you're weird like that, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, Facebook uh, at Barstool Politics beers that we try you can find on untapped that you can download on ios and android uh we are barstool politics on there so look for our reviews uh the podcast you can find on soundcloud stitcher google play music um most of you guys are on itunes so review us uh share us through there um we always appreciate the support and new listeners that come in uh and if you've been here for at least the past couple months at this point We've been telling all of you about our partnership with Predictit, which is a, uh, a real money political prediction market, uh, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, we use it pretty much every episode um, when we're talking about the Supreme Court or um, potential winners and losers in the midterms, uh, 2020 contenders, uh, lots of different things that you can kind of look up and, and put money on and uh, potentially win some money, which is great. What's really great for our listeners is that uh, Predictit uh, has offered our listeners a, uh, a special promotion. Uh, so new listeners who open up an account with Predictit uh, will receive up to a $20 match on their first deposit. So if you open up a $20 account, Predictit will match that $20. Um, pretty much free money, which is great. Uh, all you have to do is use the promo link, which is predictit.org slash promo slash barstool paul20. Uh, and you can get your free money. Okay. Good job. Uh, oh God. And as we get closer to the midterms, predicted is getting more and more exciting. Next week, we'll 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 preview some of the uh, midterm results, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We'll link predicted in uh, with all of that conversation. Yeah, I'm going to sit back and not talk anymore. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but thank you, predicted. We uh, we always like using you guys, and it's uh, it's super fun. So definitely check it out when you have a chance. Should we dive in, Nick? Caravans. Hola. Let's do it. All right. Lock up your children, people. The caravan is coming. As we inch closer to the midterm elections, Trump has seized upon a new issue to galvanize his supporters, the dangerous migrant caravan moving north through Central America. On Monday, Trump called it a national emergency and amplified the fear by factor by stating that there were unknown Middle Easterners mixed into the group. Uh, Trump has also claimed without evidence that the Democrats are paying Honduran youth to join the caravan. The caravan has dominated conservative talk radio and Fox News, uh, where there has been some speculation about a potential link to terrorism. 
Uh, this is an issue that has tremendous traction with many Republicans, and Trump is betting on it dramatically helping Republican electoral prospects this November. So much to break down here. There is no question that fate states, states face legitimate concerns about trying to address the growing number of refugees and asylum seekers around the world. Uh, these are challenges that are likely to only increase over time. Yet Trump's not-so-subtle fear-mongering, racism, and recent embrace of nationalism, it's an entirely different animal. Uh, we can also speculate on how this all plays out in the midterm. So let's dive in. Tom, you mentioned that you found this to be a really fascinating and interesting topic. Uh, what strikes you most about what's happening here? This is going to sound like a really faculty sort of thing to say, but uh, I'm struck by how hard or complex this problem is. And uh, rather than come back to the tweets or the uh, all that sort of thing, your lovable libertarian is going to say this. Uh, while I am hugely, as you might imagine, in favor of free markets, uh, very generous uh, immigration, I'm also somebody who thinks that while we don't need a lot of law, the law we have, we need to abide by. So I find myself on the horns of uh, a dilemma here, because in some ways those two things seem like they're on uh, a collision course with each other. Uh, our immigration law isn't terrific, but we have one, and it certainly is sufficient to bar people from entering the country illegally. At the same time, I'd like to see many of these people enter the country. So it's, it's emotional, it's political, it's financial, it's lots of complicated things. Um, I think there might be some potential answers, but I guess that's the first thing that occurs mm -hmm. to me is just how hard this is. Well, the good news is Donald Trump should be able to lead us in the direction to, to <laughs> grapple with those questions. Yeah, man, we're set. I don't even know why we're talking <laughs> Com about this. Complex issues and getting into the complexities is really his strong suit. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's well put, Tom, because it's so easy and the politics makes this, uh, it, it simplifies this issue. But the reality is it's complex, mm -hmm. whether you think it from an international level, a domestic uh, logistical issue, a political issue. There's a lot of things going on here. Yeah. Um, yeah. A recurring theme for me has been Congress won't do its job. And, and boy, I bet if I went back and listened to a year and a half worth of these podcasts I've, I've done, it's come up a lot, uh, and often with respect to the Supreme Court, but it comes up again here. Um, Congress won't fix the immigration law, and uh, it, it seems to me this sits as least, at least as much in their lap as anybody's, the presidents or um, advocates on both sides. I'm struck by the fact that we aren't thinking about this as a supply and demand problem, mm -hmm. and I wonder if maybe that's a way to change the rhetoric. That is to say, uh, we have largely treated this as a supply problem. That is, if we can interdict people trying to cross our borders, we can choke off supply and, and solve the problem that way. What we haven't had the courage to do is try and solve it as a demand problem. That is to say, find robust ways of making um, employers comply with the law and maybe even making the law clearer and more easily enforceable with respect to demand. Uh, I, I don't mean to say that I think it's easy, but I guess I'm just suggesting, I wonder if there's a way to change the rhetoric and think about the right. problem a little differently than we need a wall or we need sure. uh, to interdict as, as vigorously as we do. You, I mean, you, yeah, I, you've touched on, there's a lot of different things you've said that I kind of want to run with, but I, I mean, you've sort of touched on in some ways what I imagine to be the dirty little secret of all of this, which is that, um, you know, the we like to complain about immigration, but on this demand side, we realize that it's necessary at the same time, right? So yeah. there are lots of yeah. employers who need these, who need workers, right? Who and 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 they help our economy run. And so it's it's like we want the rhetoric, we want to be able to be critical of migrants and immigrants, 
while at the same time we want our cake and we want to eat it too we want to complain about them but we also want them to be here to help our system run mm-hmm. um and that's i mean that's a card that that i i don't know I, I certainly neither neither party like you said i mean back to the congress thing um you're you're right this is does seem like an issue that we should be able to find some sort of reform on this seems like the sort of issue that again years ago and i don't know how much of this is just me longing for a mythical better time that never actually existed but it does seem like you know you go back 30 years there was at least some even if it wasn't extensive some willingness in congress to work across the aisle to solve problems mm-hmm. when there were disagreements about how that problem should be solved but some recognition that with some compromise we can both get something out of this we can address the issue and that seems gone largely now and I come back to this question of how much is it that Congress, it, it, it's a question of whether Congress leads or whether people lead. So is it that Congress, members of Congress are unwilling to pass legislation because the party base has become so divided on this that they would be punished if they reached across the aisle to come up with some sort of compromise? Um, or is it that Congress has quit leading, that in the past Congress would say to their base, no, this is this is a problem that can be solved, there are reasonable solutions, and they helped form the opinions of the base. And I, I don't know if it's that Congress has quit doing that or if the base itself has got become so divided on this that even leaders can't reach across the aisle. It, it, it is frustrating. It's I think both of those things can be true, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> which is another thing that we say all the time. Um, I, I think it's kind of uh, not necessarily a, a symptom, but uh, a, a very telling um, what's the word? Uh, effect of the kind of factionalization and um, opposition politics that we've kind of fallen into. I think you've seen a lot of writing and editorial work over the past few weeks about how this is potentially a gift to the Republicans because now we have, you know, hardline immigration, uh, a stance that they can potentially take prior to the midterms. The Democrats are looking in the, at this and kind of stuck in a corner that they've put themselves in and saying that, you know, they want all these people in and aren't thinking about uh, our current uh, uh, immigration regulations and they want open borders and blah, blah, blah. I I think that, like you said, Phil, it's if they do reach across the aisle, then I, you're a traitor to your cause at this point. I can't imagine a Republican or a sizable number of Republicans or for that matter, Democrats reaching across the aisle and not, you know, invoking the the ire of their respective bases. It's it's political suicide, in my opinion, which is a really sad state to be in. Um, having said that, I tend to agree with Tom in this situation. I I think that the plight of people in Central and South America is horrendous and the level of violence is almost second to none around the world we have certain laws that are put in place and you know you can agree with them or not or you can say that it was part of congress not leading at some point that these regulations were put in place and were not really vetted out the way that they should be but these so, this is what we have at this point it, it strikes one, me oh, go, go ahead Phil. well one of the interesting things about this story is that no laws have yet been broken this is a, an interesting aspect of this you have a right under law under u.s law and under international law to present yourself at the border and seek asylum so I, this is a um i mean in this particular this to me like in some ways the the real story here is that uh, that we're even talking about this right that this is i mean this is certainly immigration is an issue but 
this is to me pretty clearly we're coming up on elections. This is going to play well with the base. And so we're going to hit this issue. I mean, we're talking about terrorism in the ties to terrorism with this this migrant caravan when I mean, we'll talk about this later, but there were literal bombs bailed around the country today. So the fact that the media has picked up the pick this up and run with it is because the president has hit on this. But I mean, to in some ways, this is where it kind of snowballs, right? The reason we're talking about it at all is because of the deeply partisan level of the bases, right? This is a story that's being put out there to invigorate the deep conservative parts of the Republican Party. So it's weird. I mean, it anyway. The yeah. fact well, that, well, that the media fairness, is covering it's, it's a little it, bit like the Palestinian problem. It's being put out there because it's red meat to both sides. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it yeah. seems to me. Is that does that seem? Oh, fair? absolutely. Yep. I think to and go I, back to neither side has an interest in resolving it right. because it continues to be red meat for both sides. I, right. Which means I, there's no interest in finding that solution. Right. right. I mean, so to your earlier point, these are complicated problems, <laughs> but. The, the, Trump doesn't really want to solve this. He, I mean, the longer he can talk about building a wall, the better politically it is for him. The more he can go out there and ramp up the base for this, that's that's good for everyone. I, I don't know if there's an interest in anybody involved, at least at the, the governmental level, to solve it. Uh, that, it's a totally unique situation that way, where there's there's no incentive to try to address a problem because politically you're better off keeping the discussion going. And that's that's awful. I wonder how much we're buying the narrative, though, by saying that, because I I think it is red meat to both sides, but it's a lot more red meat to one side. Mm -hmm. It's not that Democrats are out there like wishing for caravans of people to show up. Right. It's just an idea that they're paying them off in Honduras. (laughs) Right. I mean, I don't think that there are voters who are I don't think there are Democratic voters who today are more likely to show up and vote because of the news story about caravans from Honduras, whereas I think there are Republican voters who are fired up about that. So and, and the idea that there's no will to get this done, I, I think there again, I, there are certainly on both sides people who are unwilling to reach across the aisle. But it, it seems to me like the this is like a black and white issue to the I, I think there is some willingness on the Democrats to come to some compromise winter. It's not that you, you're making a face. We like to think people like to talk about Repu- Democrats as if they just want open borders, but that's not true, right? There's not. It's not that Democrats are saying we should let everyone in and we're unwilling to compromise on that. It's. It's. I, I don't. I don't. I don't think the two sides are as extreme as we're making them out to be. I think one side's pretty extreme on the immigration issue in the last couple of years. And I think if we look back to George W. Bush, remember, he wanted to do immigration reform. And there was a desire, right, especially with George W. Bush, to reach out to Democrats and find something. And he got hit from the right on that. So I think there's there's only so much wiggle room for a president there. The other thing important to note is that this is certainly an issue. It's, It's a problem, especially... We're going to see more and more refugees, either due to climate, to crime. There's a whole host of reasons where we're going to see more of these globally. But when you look at cross-border apprehensions along the U.S. border, those numbers have dropped dramatically since 2000, right? I mean, it's, it's gone down. Now, last year, it's up from last year. But still, the overall trend is that the numbers are down. It doesn't mean the problem goes away. But, but with the, sometimes the way we talk about it. It says it, if it's this existential crisis. It certainly is a problem, but it's something that allows the politicians can blow it up bigger than it may actually be. Sure. I, hmm. I, I, we keep kind of dancing around this particular situation. We have 7,000 people coming from various par- parts of Central and South America that are, I mean, their end goal is to get to the U.S. border. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, 
we can talk about the politics all we want, but at some point they're either going to get there or they're not going to get there. So what is the end result? Regardless of where you are in the political spectrum, what is the best result for these people and, I guess, your your political alignment at that point? The likely result is whoever, it's not going to be 7,000, but whoever gets to the border will claim asylum. And my understanding of international law, Phil, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that you would apply for asylum and then those cases would be heard. Uh, and the U.S. is, you, you're not guaranteed of getting asylum. In fact, a majority of asylum seekers do not get that category. And there's the, the previous caravans that have come to the U.S. border, many of them have been turned away. Uh, so I, I think you're right that we could have better international law. And that doesn't mean that individuals don't then try to circumvent law by getting into the United States. But there is a process in place for hearing these claims. There is. But now, uh, again, like the sheer, we've talked about the immigration, the worldwide immigration crisis for pretty much the entirety of this podcast. This is not going to go away anytime soon. And we can't continuously bring in large numbers of people asking for asylum. There needs to be a change in the process where it's it's just not sustainable. You can't do that. We don't have the infrastructure to do it. We don't have the policies and the procedures to do it in a, in a timely, effective, efficient manner. So what stops this from not becoming a, a consistent kind of perpetual thing that occurs? So... I'm going to push back a little bit. That that may be the case, but I'm not sure it's the case. Like, I don't know what the number of sustainable refugees is in a particular year. I think we we suggest that it's too many, but I don't know what that number is Mm -hmm. uh, and what. Why do you think it would go down, though? Well, a lot of it, I think, to Tom's initial point, it talks about supply and demand, right? What is what is our country need? And, and there are many people talk about immigration as one of the driving forces for the economy. There's sure. real benefit there. So I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure. Maybe it'd be good to talk to an economist about that, like what that number might be. We're certainly cutting down on who can enter the country. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there may, in fact, be negative economic consequences because of that. And again, I don't know. But I think you're, you're right to say that the assumption is we have to cut back. And I'm, I'm not... I guess I'm saying I'm not so sure that's the case. So I'm going to push back on your pushback push back. real that's quick. That's fine, yeah. Uh, I, I agree. I, I firmly believe that immigration is a, a major economic factor um, for positive economic growth. However, there's also been a lot of talk and a lot of um, discussion about uh, illegal immigration and how the U.S., definitely uh, U.S. agriculture manufacturing has become dependent on extremely low-paid illegal immigration as opposed to legitimate, you know, years-long process immigration that most of these people, you know, that are supposed to go through the process would go through. If if we're putting these people through the system, and we do find a way to do that, they're no longer those people that the economy at those levels, they're, they're, no, they're no use to us because we don't run on that system, which is a bigger problem than any of this at this point, if you want to talk about supply and demand. So... I mean, we can talk about immigration all we want and how it's an economic um, uh, boon, but if it's not the right type of immigration right now, we're we're screwing ourselves. I I, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's a good way out of that particular situation. And that strikes me as there could be reasonable conversations held up about that. Like, how do we handle all of this? I don't like having reasonable okay, conversations. It doesn't seem like a lot of people <laughs> like it either. Well, and that, that's where we you get back to the democratic. I mean the the immigration reform question, right? Because the the immigration process is so complicated and so long and so costly 
that if what Amer- if the, what the U.S. needs is low wage labor, that the, that that we are filling from a largely immigrant pool, you're not likely to get that through a process that takes years and tens of thousands of dollars to get your your legal residency. And so that's the sort of example in which you look at the system and say, hey, this is not meeting the needs of you know what we need in terms of of labor, what we want to allow in terms of human rights issues. The current system's not meeting those needs, but the unwillingness of Congress or well, it's the, the unwillingness of, of Congress to deal with it comes again from the fact that they would face a lot of blowback. Yeah, I mean, it feeds on itself, right? It, it, the politicians benefit by firing up the base on these issues, and then they're caught in their own rhetoric because they can't then go back to a moderate solution um, because they've fired up the base on those issues. Mm-hmm. So. There's, there's one more dimension of this that's interesting to me, and that's the question of our effort to ameliorate problems in the places from which these immigrants sure. come. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I'm, uh, the more I think about it, the more intriguing and difficult that question becomes. Uh, in a universe where America is the great colonialist, right, and, and um, the worry that we'd appear to be that, and yet at the same time, what these asylum claims make is an argument that life is so unbearable and dangerous in Honduras or Guatemala or a place like that, um, that we should move to the front of the line, people who are from those places. So the question is, do we have an obligation to try and uh, address the difficulties in Honduras and Guatemala? If we do, what does that look like? And do other parts of the industrialized world have a similar obligation to do that? I think you could make both a moral and a strategic argument for doing so. To say that it's in our interest to help develop those places so that you're not having a constant influx of individuals, refugees fleeing them. And it's a moral argument to say that, yeah, I think as a developed country in this international system, you bear some responsibility to help pull those up. I, I, I think that's a great idea. And I think that's the reason why Trump threatening to cut foreign aid is not necessarily a good idea. Maybe you think about it in the flip and say, instead of trying to build walls, let's try to help Honduras stabilize. So, so but tell me what that looks like. Uh, it does sound it's like it's a great not, idea, yeah. and I, and I yeah. wish it would work. But I don't think there's a, 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 a surfeit of evidence that around the world, American cash aid mm-hmm. has produced better lives for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've spent billions and billions on the African continent mm-hmm. uh, to... Should we, is it fair to say modest effect, mm-hmm. uh, maybe mm-hmm. even less than that? Yeah. So I find myself wondering, what is it that we do when we mm-hmm. mail a check to Honduras or Guatemala? Or what is it that we do that, that solves this problem? This, I, I agree with you. There's yeah. a moral imperative here, but I'm yeah. wondering what it looks like to satisfy it. This is a great debate. And within the international relations comparative politics literature, there's this question of, is foreign aid effective? And, and there's one camp that says, absolutely not. All this money is going down the drain uh, and that we should stop doing that because then states will self-determine on their own and that's their better chance of actually developing. And then there's another side that says, no, that's uh, that's ignorant, that there is, a fact, there is, in fact, a lot of difference that aid makes. Uh, uh, so it's, it's not an easy answer. And I think Africa is a mixed bag in terms of foreign aid and support. Phil, I mean, w- what's your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, I, I it's... It, you're you're right. I mean, it's deeply complicated, and it gets back to. Um, there are also these larger systemic issues at play as well, where you know we can. You take one country, take Honduras, and if you want to invest financially or even make you know 
targeted trade deals. We're going to we're going to work specifically on Honduras to mm -hmm. improve them. There are still these larger systemic issues regarding economics and trade and the flow of you know jobs to to low income places. And there's pressures there. And, you know, until people start until people are concerned about the labor conditions of where they're getting their garments and their products from right until those sorts of things there's these big questions that are going to be in place even long term that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to mm -hmm. fix these or address them or bring stability to um to central america and i mean it also gets back to you know this is also a, a question of I don't know. To some extent, there does seem some level of obligation. U.S. has benefited for much of its history by laying claim to the Western Hemisphere, right back to the Monroe Doctrine, and and we did some pretty shitty things to a lot of countries in 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 Latin America over the years. And I don't know. There is something to it in terms of the moral obligation side of it as well to this claim of, you know, we've benefited from this claim that the Western Hemisphere is our area, and we've benefited from economic investment and in, in influence in Latin America. And the, when you benefit like that, when you lay claim to it, you get benefits, but there are obligations that come with it as well. And it does seem like, you know, to, to step back and think, hey, maybe we have some, you could say duty, or even if you don't want to go so far as to say duty, you could say that, you know, we've, we've, we've benefited. Maybe we should also, you know, contribute in some way to these places that are struggling. I, I mean, just Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, we contribute tens of billions of dollars to their economies. Where that actually goes, I don't have the specifics on that, but it's not insignificant, the amount of money that we give to these countries. Nine out of the 10 most violent countries on the planet are in South America, Central and South America. 16 out of the top 20 are in Central and South America. It's at some point, I mean, the cash clearly isn't doing anything. So you have to think about if you want to talk about systemic issues, corruption and violence and, you know, cultural mores and, and things that are somewhat I, I think we can say that we've contributed to a negative portion of it. But I, I mean, what is the obligation at that point? I mean, you can't we're not imperialists, right? Supposedly, so we can't impose our culture, but we can't also just give them cash to do what they want. So, what is what what is our obligation at that point? I, I mean, I don't I don't know the answer to that question. Well, I mean, God that's damn a, it! That's a difficult question <laughs> to ask. But I, I I mean, I think that that I I don't. I think it's comforting to say we're not imperialists, but again, and to talk about how all of this flippant. violence and whatever in Latin America, <laughs> but if you go back over the past 70 years, right, Guatemala, we can point to Guatemala. How many times has the Guatemalan government been overthrown at the direction of the U.S. government because it benefited us, right? Oh, or, you know, go to, you know, Chile or like all these, all these countries that we have dabbled in when it benefited us in terms of the Cold War or whatever. So to then say, well, we're not imperialists, we can't go in and, and fix it. But, you know, when when it's convenient to be imperialist behind mm. the scenes, we'll gladly do it. So oh, that yeah. It doesn't answer the question of how we fix it. But I yeah. do think that the idea of saying, you know, these awful places that are, you know, dangerous and sending people to us, I don't know. I just I want there to be some larger concept of the ways in which we've contributed to this instability in yeah. Latin America no, and benefited I, from it in the long run. I, yeah, I, 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 was, I was joking. I absolutely believe we've been imperialists <laughs> and, and we continue to do so in a lot of ways. But um, I, I, mm -hmm. there, there's something about this particular situation that I, I don't think from a political perspective, whether you're talking about within Congress and their ability to affect change or 
the overall American population that there's the stomach to um, events are are kind of wider economic cultural values um, more overtly than we already do. I don't think we're going to go the way of you know more governmental coups the way that we did earlier in uh, you know I guess midway through the 20th century latter half of the 20th century but it's I I mm, I, I I'm I'm re- <laughs> I don't know I can't even think of a good way out of well, this. Well, here's so part of so Trump gave the speech to the UN or I can't remember what speech it was where he was talking about refugees and his argument and it was sort of sort of a dumb argument was but like don't flee your country make your country great again. Mm-hmm. But it strikes me that that could be grounds for a more robust support of those countries and whether that's financial aid or political aid or whatever that looks like it seems to me that trump could say i'm tired of people coming across our border i'm going to be proactive and help develop other those countries through political economic social whatever that might be mechanisms to help alleviate uh the supply of those individuals that are coming to our border and i don't know if that works but it seems like it would be consistent with his worldview to do something like that, mm-hmm. but we can't keep saying whatever that might be, right? No, or that's however right. That right. looks, or yeah. I'm not sure how we do that, but we should do it. I realize a 20 minute conversation yeah. on a podcast isn't the place to tease out the details of foreign sure. aid, but but it feels to me like the easy answer is we should do something. The hard answer is here's what it would look what like operationally. Hundred percent. Right. Can I just throw one more? Yeah. Are we out yeah. of time? No, no, no we got to jump to nationalism. I mean, but we one of the, well, maybe this is the way to do yeah. it. I. I um, I'm interested in, in what feels to me, and, and you all might know better than, than me, a shift in the way we think about asylum. Uh, uh, my conception of it has always been that an individual makes a case that they are, uh, for particularized reasons, uh, the object of uh, hate and potential violence. A caravan of people escaping a culture of violence feels different to me. And I'm wondering how we think we should adjudicate asylum claims in a court where somebody says, um, it's not necessarily just me, it's that I happen to live in a place that is rampant with violence and danger. Uh, I'm not a political target. I'm not an informant. I'm not a spy. I'm not something that, uh, at least as I understand it, have been the traditional uh, uh, sort of appeals to asylum. I'm just somebody who lives somewhere violent. Uh, and I, this is going to be a comparison that I recognize in terms of numbers and ratios won't make sense, but there's an awful lot of people living in Humboldt Park and Englewood and, and Woodlawn and Austin that say, every day I get up, it's to gunshots and that sort of thing. Now, I recognize they're already here, but the question is, how do you talk about systemic violence rather than individualized violence relative to asylum? Mm-hmm. And my understanding of asylum cases is that more macro level, mm-hmm. they oftentimes get turned down. So mm-hmm. if you can't speak to specific political persecution and you're just talking about a more macro level dangerous environment, you're more likely to be turned down. Uh, and th- this this would require a, a deeper conversation to say, is the United States going to care more about the systemic violence yeah. Yeah. than right. the individual violence. Yeah. So I think it's a it's a great question. It is an interesting it is interesting question. And my my again historically, like you said, Bill, we we look at more focused cases, right? I'm yeah. targeted because of, I'm of a particular ethnic group or a polit- political opinion. Um, but as you were talking, Tom, I was thinking about yeah, there's something weird about people just leaving because a place is violent. But the other analogy, the other thought that came into my head is if someone came to the U.S because they were fleeing 
Syria, not because they were on any particular side. They weren't like being targeted because they were anti-government or pro-government. They just their life has been destroyed because of chemical weapons and barrel bombs and war. And yeah. like you, you would be sympathetic to them coming from a violent place. Oh, and I hope so, I don't sound like I'm being unsympathetic. No, 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 no I don't. No, I, was, yeah. I wasn't meaning to okay. characterize you that way. I just, I, I, it's easy for me to go if when I go to one extreme of that yeah. um, spectrum, right? It's easy for me to say, well, sure, they they deserve asylum. When you go to the, you know, as you come down that spectrum, the question is, where does that cut off? Yeah, yeah. go right at one, at some point. You know, I I'm from, you know, people get in, you know, fist fights outside of my door every yeah. night. Seems like a weak excuse for. Uh, asylum but yeah i mean if you've come from a country like you were saying nick if if you know some of the most violent countries are in in latin america then where you know where do we draw the line between that sort of violence and you know where murder rates are incredibly high mm-hmm. and murder that is falls under the category of war because it's happening in the syrian civil civil war yeah i'm I, trying to imagine being an asylum judge mm-hmm. who's looking yeah. in the eye of somebody who says uh, I don't have a particularized threat, but I have a systemic threat. And if you send me back, you send me to a system where the yeah. odds are I might die. Not because of who I am, but because I'm in an environment where that might take place. Yes. Mm-hmm. I don't know how a judge manages yeah. that. Yeah. I don't... But to, to some extent, you could make the argument, as you say that, that, that uh, we kind of shift this towards nationalism, that who you are, right? If you're Honduran and Honduras is a place that is, you know, tremendously violent, then you, that is, that does at some point become a question of who you are, right? You're facing violence because of who you are, because of where you were born. So, so I, then, that would be so then definitionally you're saying that every citizen right. of the country of Honduras is Could claim, theoretically in right. a position to claim asylum. And maybe everybody that lives in Guatemala uh, or El that's Salvador, how, that's how you solve it. Or Syria, <laughs> yeah, it or, uh, and I realize you weren't saying that, but but right, it, no, in I, some ways, it, a judge is going to have to make a yeah. decision. Mm-hmm. If I say yes to you, right? What's the bright line rule that lets me say no to somebody else? Yes, that's a hard decision. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But and there has to be a plausible way to make exactly. it. Exactly, and manageable. You look more sympathetic right. than I do, yeah. or your your you, case you is live more in extreme. a neighborhood in Honduras that's maybe yep. worse than another one. It's a really difficult line yeah, to draw. That's rough. So, and, and I like the, the, the point that you made about having to look them in the eye, because I think that's the other part of this that gets oftentimes lost in these yeah. stories of big caravans or security threats, is that these are real people that it's easy for me to feel compassion towards. Because if I were in their situation uh-huh. and I had kids and they were, I was lived in the, I would do everything I could to get to a safer place and to seek asylum. So it's, you know, that that's... That's the, the tension that's really difficult. Before we move on to the next topic, I, uh, so we have an expert here, Phil Barker, in nationalism. He's written books. He's he's requested to, all across Europe to come and give lectures on nationalism. And since we're, we're on this topic, Donald Trump came out on Tuesday or what, earlier this week and claimed he was a nationalist. And so we – and I think it connects to this immigration and the caravan debate – Nick, let's play the tape and hear, and then I want to hear some Phil Barker analysis of how this all fits together. (laughs) And I won't be talking because I just want to take notes. (laughs) Okay, good. Okay, here we go. Power-hungry globalists. You know what a globalist is, right? You know what a globalist is. A globalist is a person that wants the globe to do well, frankly, not caring about our country so much. And you know what? We can't have that. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. (laughs) 
Nashville. Nothing like Use that word. Use that word. Chance of USA, Lock yeah. Her up. So, so Phil, this uh, previous presidents, and in fact, more recently, so John McCain, before he died, came out and gave a big speech against nationalism. George W. Bush has done so recently. Barack Obama, they've argued against this concept and this term. Now, Trump is embracing that uh, in light of all of the caravan dynamics, or some of them. What's your reaction to this? Um, so I, this is another issue that's complicated, yeah. right? Um, there's been a lot of talk about this, about how nationalism is this terrible word and this terrible thing. Um, I, you know, for people who study nationalism, it's way more complicated than that. I don't, you know, you can't just come out and say that anybody who uses the word nationalist is is bad. Um, nationalism, you know, every country has some form of nationalism, some form of some form of national identity and who we are and how do we identify and how do we define ourselves. That, in my argument, is the conversation that we should be having more explicitly that's going on in, you know, behind the scenes or, or you know, uh, a little bit more um, subtly. Uh, this conversation that we were just talking about in terms of immigration, about who gets to be an American, who is American and who's not, you know, historically we've had this notion of immigration as part of that. So all of this talk about nationalism and nationalist and being proud of your country isn't in and of itself necessarily bad. Now, having said all of that, <laughs> um, nationalism does have a really long, bloody history, right? I mean, the, the world wars are essentially wars of nationalism. Um, there is, there can easily be within nationalism this level of not just ethnocentrism, not just this idea of us first, but of superiority, right? That the reason why, you know, I am a nationalist is because being German is being is better than other people. Um, so that, that element of it, the reason people have stayed away from the term nationalist as opposed to nationalism is because claiming to be a nationalist is something that the Nazi party did, right? I mean, this was, this was where it was after Nazi Germany that the sort of decline in the use of nationalist as a term, um, came in, into play. So just the word nationalism or nationalist isn't necessarily in and of itself bad, but when you look at the way Trump is using it, right? when he talks about globalists and nationalists, those are, I, I would say they're dog whistles, right? They're, they're these terms that people know what he means without explicitly saying it, but they're not even subtle dog whistles, right? When he says globalist, everybody listening knows who he's talking about. And when he says nationalist, he knows mm -hmm. what people are talking about. He even says, I, I'm old, you know, it's an old fashioned idea and I'm not supposed to say it. So this is, you know, the, you could put that, you could, you know, people talked about, you could put white in front of nationalist in that sentence, and the sentence would make perfect sense, right? I'm not supposed to be a white. There, There is clearly in, in his in his notion, um, there that element of exclusion and sort of superiority, right? That America, I'm a nationalist, which means that America is better, not in a like civic pride kind of way, but in we want to keep the, the you know, the, the, uh, dregs of society out we want to support this so i, I mean i it's concerning for me that he's using that rhetoric it's not all that different from other stuff he's been saying right it's he's now using this word but he's referencing ideas and themes that he has referenced throughout his his two years in office um it's, it's it, 
it ties in with the it certainly ties in with the with this caravan caravan and immigration stuff and it's entirely possible that he is ignorant of the the deeper meaning of this term and what he really means is patriotism and there's an important distinction of love of country versus love of nation but even if we give him that benefit of the doubt there are others around the country who will take him using that word as support for more pernicious causes, right? So white nationalists will see him using the term nationalist, whether he intends it that way or not, as as tacit support, right? So I, yes, absolutely. But I think you're being too kind to him. Because <laughs> just because of this, right? If he meant patriotism, right? If he meant to say, I'm a patriot, I'm proud of America, and that's old fashioned. He wouldn't say, I'm not supposed to say this, right? He wouldn't mm -hmm. talk about globalism. Like the, the context of what he's saying and how he's saying it makes it clear that he's not saying, I'm proud to be an American. He's saying that, I, you know, it's very, it, I mean, he's talked about it. It's part of his campaign, America first, right? We are, we're going to prioritize ourselves over everyone else in a, in a not in a like, you know, well, I, I'm going to feed my children before I feed starving children, but in a like, there's you know there's an element of superiority to it i i just i don't i think he knows what he's doing right he knows what he's doing interesting is it possible there's another read on this i i, I say this every time i offer the caveat i am not a trump apologist in any sense of the word but is it possible he's responding to things like the the cuomo statement make america great again it wasn't very great to start with or that sort of thing mm -hmm. I, I agree he is not probably sophisticated uh, and i'm not either on mm -hmm. the history of nationalism but i wonder if it's fair to say that he is intentionally invoking language intended to support the worst kind of it is, is that a fair question I, there is a, a a dimension right now of American politics that is captured in that Cuomo statement. And and I wonder if he doesn't see himself as Republican against that kind of Democrat. Mm -hmm. It's at least an alternative way of thinking about what he's saying. Maybe a wrong one, but uh, it... Yeah. Nick, given it just a way in. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, I think we tend to like you said, you can talk about white nationalists or, or you know, that the kind of element that is the, the dregs of society that comes up in these conversations all the time and does, you know, I, they're, they're horrible people. I, I don't think anybody can really disagree with that. Um, I, when you talk to more moderate Republicans, even, you know, slightly left of center Democrats, it's, I, I don't... I, I do think the way that he uses it, he knows what he's doing. It's it's kind of a dog whistle thing, but he's appealing to a very a very um, uh, solid base as opposed to the people in the middle who tend to think, yeah, uh, you know, I'm an American who's mm -hmm. been struggling a long time. I want to put my family first. I want to put yeah. my country first. You know, my it, this is my culture. It's where I grew up. I want to make sure it's stable and secure and everything is okay. You know, there's people on the other end of the si other end of the spectrum that are clearly anathema to what I believe and and saying it very blatantly, and I don't support that at all. Um, so I don't think it takes much to make it something that is can be seen as as you know hyper negative um, from a, a hyper nationalist perspective and the sovereign state system and all that bullshit into something that is. 
yeah, I mean, this is just kind of what I believed, and now people are saying otherwise. And I, 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 I'm not seeing a lot of alternative besides what the president is saying. The proximity so, to the midterms also makes me wonder, right? So he has well, been yeah, reluctant to use this. Yeah. And he, in the past, he has said, I can't use this word. And at one point, he said, well, I'm a nationalist, but I'm also a globalist. And he kind of qualifies it. So the fact that he's using it this close to the midterms, it may be something so, else, maybe a little bit deeper. This is the beauty of dog whistle politics, though, yes. right? Like what you were saying, Nick, about the people in the middle and, you know, they don't react to this necessarily. He says it in a way that the four of us can sit around and debate his intention. But there is a group of people out there who heard a very specific thing when he oh, said, I'm okay. not a globalist. Mm -hmm. I'm a nationalist, right? They they know what he's saying, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I guess when I come back around to I, I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I want to think that, oh, he's just talking. Right. He's this is a term that he's heard Democrats get upset about. But it's when you, when you combine those the sort of statements about I'm I'm not a globalist, I'm a nationalist with all it's it's again it's this it's the you know the burden it's like this bulk of evidence right when you put that into statements about you know terrorists coming in in caravans from yeah. latin america and mexican rapists and shithole african countries and banning muslims and mm -hmm. reducing refugee when you put all of that together then what he means by being a nationalist it seemed like it starts to it, yeah. i don't know it, it becomes harder for me to give him the benefit of the doubt and saying yeah, that's a really I'm just important a, yeah, point. That's, yeah. A, that's a really important yeah. point. i, I <clears throat> I know we have to move on. We're way, way over time that on this. That was smart, Phil. Thank you. I, I'm going to write all that down later. <laughs> I, I, I want to make one last point on this. Sure. I, I, I agree with you 100% on that. The people that who immediately uh, kind of go towards that rhetoric are people who are already aligned with him in, in the first place, uh, at least in my opinion. I do think, though, when, again, when you talk about people that are in the middle or that are more moderate, the, the narrative that they create for themselves or that they can kind of see through the the bullshit handholding that he's doing with everybody is is it rule of law or something that is more kind of amorphous mm -hmm. social philosophical that doesn't necessarily appeal to me because it has no immediate um result mm -hmm. i guess mm -hmm. it's this is what i believe and this is what my culture is based around, my society is based around, or it's this other thing that people don't seem to really agree on, but they're opposing what I believe, which is, I think that's a huge determining factor coming up to the midterms and future elections. And it might be very, a very effective strategy as well, right? Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll see. Um, all right, let's let's jump and talk. Yes, beers. I have two beers we need to talk about. Phil, are you drinking? Are you you're on pain yeah. medication, right? No, steroids. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but that means I'm not drinking as much. Okay. Uh, so I did have one beer tonight. Um, I had a. I don't even know two. It's two. I'm trying to figure. It out. <laughs> two roads, Honey Spot Road IPA. So I guess two roads is the brewery. Um, Stratford, Connecticut. All right. Um, I've not had anything from this brewery before. Uh, it was it's an unfiltered IPA. It had a hint of I don't think it's named because of uh, I think it's Honey Spot Road is the the name uh, the place where the brewery is, but it had kind of a sweet like what tasted sort of honey like to it. Um, you know I had a long day and I'm really tired <laughs> and I drank this fast and it was it was nice at the end of a long day. So I don't have any sophisticated review other than it did the job. That's <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> 
So today, the, the three of us here in Chicago are, are drinking two of my favorite ambers. So one is an old-school amber, a River West Stein from Lakefoot Brewery that has been around for years and years and years. And the other one is a relatively new one from Ale Asylum out of Madison, Wisconsin, called Ambergeddon. Um, I'm going to start start with Tom, because you're a beer expert. So oh. what, what was your sense of these two beers? And, and I think they're both delicious. I've had them before. Uh, the River West is a little bit like a Marzen or an Oktoberfest, mm-hmm. so it's a... It's a little bit uh, malty and uh, delicious. Um, uh, conversely, uh, the Embergeddon is a little bit hoppier, mm-hmm. uh, not quite IPA kind of, or even APA kind of, ho- kind of hoppy, but I think are, I, these are great beers, mm-hmm. yeah. really good beers. Nick, which one did you like Super better? Super drinkable. I think I like the River West better. The the Embergeddon had that kind of, it had a kind of a sharp bite to it, uh-huh. which was, it was good it was different um coming off of something that was a little bit milder and had a little bit of sweetness to it um it was a little bit of a shock so uh, maybe if i had them separately they would be equally as good i think i like the river west better personally you know i agree with you and i haven't been drinking the river west stein because i kind of felt like that was an old school craft brewery you know we've moved on we've gotten better and i really like the amber geddon and then having them right next to each other, I think I like yeah, the River West yeah. Stein just a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So, so two good beers. Put Wisconsin. me down as a third vote for that. Yeah, I, and I love Marzen yeah. Oktoberfest. Yeah. It's such a great style, and that's yeah. it's a lot like it to me. Mm-hmm. Really All good. right, good uh, stuff. Anything that we try, yeah, beers, um, whatever drinks that we we try. Um, you can check out our reviews on Untapped that you can download on iOS and Android. Um, so look for Barstool Politics on there. That's good. Speed round. I think we're going to go long on this one. That's all right. Uh, All right, so we're lucky to have Professor Tom Cavanaugh with us today to reflect on the state of the Supreme Court. The Kavanaugh, other Kavanaugh, hearing perfectly captured the division in the country and prompted anger and outrage on both sides. Um, It also created... What's that? What? Really? Both sides. Both sides were angry, Nick. Angry? Yeah, Yeah, angry. (laughs) Uh, It also has created worry in some corners that this will undermine the legitimacy of the court. The Supreme Court is arguably the lone remaining institution within the U.S. democracy that the public still has faith in. The approval rating of the Supreme Court in July was 53%, compared to Congress, which had a low of 13% last year. I know. Tom, you love the Supreme Court as an institution more than anyone I know. Do you worry whether the legacy of the Kavanaugh nomination will harm the court's legitimacy? Well, of course, I always worry about my beloved Supreme Court. (laughs) I I start by saying that. Um, uh, you know, the first thing to say is, is totally off this topic, or at least only related to it, and it is the sort of sad announcement from Sandra Day O'Connor today uh, that she is in the beginnings of Alzheimer's. And here's our first female justice, a, a genuinely decent, excellent person. Um, so I guess I just want to note that for yeah. the, the, the listeners. Um, I think this is a short-term worry uh, that is not a long-term problem unless the other branches of government continue to try and delegitimize the court. And maybe try is too strong a word. Unless other branches of government continue to talk about a tainted court, an untrustworthy court, uh, I've even heard the word polluted uh, court. Um, This is not the first time there has been a justice on the court that people were troubled by. You can make a case, of course. Let's just start with a guy like Hugo Black, who was in the KKK, Uh, Abe Fortas, who was, hip deep in corruption. Um, It's not the first controversial justice and the court has survived those things in the past. I think in part it survived them though because the surrounding branches um, treated it differently. And and, and this this feels like a a sort of watershed to me. And so I, I guess I would make this point. 
Justice Kavanaugh can't do anything alone. It takes five votes to win a case. It takes four to grant cert. And the idea that um, any single justice is, is so polluting an influence uh, is demeaning to the other eight, and in many ways demeaning to the institution. Uh, of all the things that I was heartened by, it has been the response of the other members of the court on both sides uh, about accepting a new colleague, recognizing the difficulty of the circumstances they are all under. John Roberts has been, uh, I think, enormously artful in his ways of talking about, we don't serve the people, we serve the Constitution. Um, so I don't have long-term worries unless we do with this what we're doing with just to make a tie here, immigration. Mm -hmm. That is making it into a thing where neither side has any interest in winning, but where both sides have an interest in making it into uh, uh, an issue that is political in a different way than it's intended to be. Does, it, does that it make does. sense? Mm -hmm. uh, these mm -hmm. appointments are all political. Let's, sure. Don't let anybody pretend yeah. they aren't, shouldn't be, and always have been. I was, I was, we've talked in the past about the unique role that John Roberts plays in trying to keep, at this point, the court legitimacy well-respected. Do you anticipate anybody on, of, the, of the more liberal justices reaching out to him? I keep wondering whether like, somebody like Sotomayor, who's brilliant in a very unique way, will, will she try to craft decisions in a way of pulling him? Or, or I mean, I guess, do you think there's, there's, is there something on the left that we should be looking for to help stabilize this while they don't give up their judicial philosophy? I think life tenure gives people a chance to rise to the job. In a way, political positions encourage you to uh, reduce yourself. And uh, I, it feels to me like the vast majority of, of justices have been people who said, uh, I want to do the right thing. And uh, so the short answer is yes, I think you're going to see both sides of the court rally around because they all understand that there is no enforcement mechanism for the Supreme Court other than its legitimacy. And all of them have a stake. And I think they understand that all 275 million Americans have a stake in believing the court is a legitimate, honest, uncompromised um, arbiter of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. and, and I think you've seen some of that this week. Sotomayor was was very vocal about we have a new colleague we're gonna we're gonna reach out we're gonna work together uh, I, I I'm really heartened by it to be honest in fact in some ways it felt really good to me to watch the institution that I love so much model a kind of behavior we've seen so little of uh, in, in the American public uh, discourse lately mm -hmm. other gentlemen <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I think I, I, I think there's a, a lot of truth to what you're saying. I mean, I, the the idea that the Supreme Court is not political or partisan or what or whatever, you know, it, it's it, there's a long history of of cases that you can make where the Supreme Court was playing politics, right? And all obviously nominations, uh, justices are chosen for their um, political philosophy in some way. Um, I was, I mean, I was concerned. I was disheartened uh, when Kavanaugh, in his hearing, made the specifically partisan statement. So that, because of the thing you're talking about, I think he helped fuel that fire a little bit by lashing out against Democrats and talking about how this was all, you know, revenge for the Clintons and what goes around comes around. 
Um, that was, I mean, there were lots of things in the hearings that concerned me, but that's sure. the exchange that has stuck with me, that, that leads me to worry about him. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said all of that, I think that that's the, you know, a lot of that's up to him now that he's on the, it's up to him now that he's on the court to show that that was, you know, he wrote the op-ed essentially apologizing or saying that he, he, yeah. um, was, you know, inappropriate or, or heated. Now it's on him to to actually follow through on that, right? That doesn't mean that he has to have anything other than his own judicial and ideas, and that can be conservative. But to do it in a sort of nonpartisan, you know, above the fray kind of way, um, yeah. So I mean, I think it's on the that the that job of protecting the legitimacy of the court falls on political actors, but it also falls on 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 the court in general, but on yeah. him specifically, I think. Mm-hmm. A couple other things uh, occur to me, and, and one is to say out loud, he has less power relative to his peers now than he did on the D.C. Circuit. Uh, uh, that is to say, three judge panels decide appellate court cases, the overwhelming majority of which are not granted its uh, cert and are never heard by the Supreme Court. So in this 312 opinions he wrote, it was just a tiny handful that went to this. They were all affirmed, but uh, of, of the 312, it's like 307 that didn't go to the Supreme Court. So some people might be heartened to hear that there's actually a moderating influence of a different kind on him now than there has been in the past. The second thing to say is that uh, the really important person in America today is John Roberts. And I'd be asking myself uh, if I was somebody worried about the Supreme Court, less this question, do I trust uh, 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 Justice Kavanaugh? And more this one, do I I trust John Roberts? He's gonna be the fifth vote. He's essentially the one that slides into the Kennedy seat. And he has said since the moment he was nominated that the integrity and legitimacy of this institution is the single most important thing in his mind as he makes judgments about the way it does its business. And I do trust him. And, and I, I think it's not unfair to say that he's somebody that, in a way, you know, you don't talk about justices reaching across the aisle, but he's not unsophisticated. He saved the Affordable Care Act describing that mandate as a tax. He understands the context in which the court works. And I'm, I'm optimistic that, would, that they stay it, trustworthy, I, it might be the best way to put it. Where would you put the threat the court faces? So you know, you're right, the, the court has a long history. This is currently, I mean, the, the current moment is a very tense <clears throat> moment. Mm-hmm. Where does this fit in terms of history of the, of the stresses the court has faced. Is this one of the well, more you know, an interesting ones? one that you might all like to talk about is that there's been talk of packing the court again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, among others, the uh, candidate Ocasio Cortez has said it out loud: uh, "We need to take the House, we need to take the Senate, we need to pack the court." Um, that is the kind of delegitimating language that worries me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it, so you don't agree with that? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, as a matter of fact, I don't. And, and thankfully, the last time it was tried, neither did Congress. Um, I, I, I don't think we are at a point in history that's like the point where there was an honest conversation about packing the court. Uh, I, we've become a culture that lives constantly moving from one crisis to the next. I don't think this is a crisis. Mm-hmm. I think we have a justice that is polarizing. And, I, and I, I'd even say we have a justice that's polarizing in a way that probably none of the nine that are on there is. I'm, I'm with you, Phil. The thing that sticks with me is that uh, partisan um, 
anger. And, and that's that's different than Clarence Thomas talking about a high tech lynching or something like that. Yeah. Um, at least it's it, it it's less implicit. Um, but I, I I don't see this as an existential problem. And I, I, I who's going to make it that modern politicians? Right. And and that's what that's my biggest worry. That if we keep having conversations like we got to pack the court because it's the only way to make it legitimate or or that sort of thing, that's what erodes trust and. Boy, oh boy, do we have to get to a position in America where people say that these institutions are more important than them? Mm-hmm. They this is, are. This is why we need well, to have Kavanaugh uh, more often. I feel, I feel better. better. <laughs> I feel much better. Yes, I've, I've been worrying about the court, the democracy, and I think those are legitimate worries. But that makes me feel better, Tom. Well, it, this goes back in some ways. I, I feel like on previous uh, episodes when you've been on, Tom, you've you've made points similar to this, and you made a you you made you made this point again earlier today, which is that to some extent. The issues related to the Supreme Court, they're not done away with, but they can be dealt if you're concerned about the Supreme Court, Congress can actually, you know, the, the Congress can pass new laws, right? The, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court doesn't doesn't get to make the laws. They get to rule on constitutionality. And if you have a problem with the way they're ruling on that, you can amend the Constitution even. So there are, you know, the the the, the fact of the matter is if you're concerned about what the Supreme Court might do, then that's where I, I once picked voting, nits, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to do it uh, only to say that I agree with you. Uh, amending the Constitution is not a thing we're likely to see again, I suspect, in our adult lives. Right. So it's not a solution to a tainted court. Uh, I, in many of the, the, the occasions on which I've said Congress can, can solve this, it's not by amending the Constitution. It's by rewriting the Federal Arbitration Act. Mm-hmm. It's by rewriting the Affordable Care Act. So I'm totally with you, Phil. There is a solution. And it's not as hard as uh, amending the Constitution. Um, So I I guess I just want to say that. That's good. All right. Uh, Let's jump to our next topic. So so we learned today that explosive bombs were sent to Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, as well as CNN's offices in New York addressed to former CIA director John Brennan. Apparently Eric Holder, Maxine Waters also received these. Uh, this is in addition to three devices that were sent to the home of George Soros on Monday. Monday. Uh, this has led to speculation of whether a bomber is going after individuals who have figured prominently in conservative political attacks, many of which have been led by President Trump. The administration has condemned what it calls terrorizing acts as despicable. While we still don't know anything about the individual's motivations, it appears to be just another sign of the degree to which our hate and political division have consumed the system. Today, Trump said, we have to unify, we have to come together. Yet it is hard to think of a political figure who is less capable of doing so. Uh, Phil, you were particularly troubled by what happened today. Why don't you want to explain? Well, I mean, so we've we've talked a lot over the past year and a half. Um, maybe, I don't think we've talked too much about it. Maybe we've talked too much about it for our listeners. Of the importance of rhetoric, right? And and that, that the way you talk about stuff matters. We've talked about this in the last couple of weeks on both sides, right? The mm-hmm. idea of of civility and I got worked up two weeks ago because Trump referred to Democrats as evil and you know Nick and I had an argument about Hillary Clinton and, <laughs> but and the, the point is on both sides right this idea of civility and of demonizing the opposition um, it has real consequences right we we are not the type that well, we can have this conversation and none of the four of us I hope are are motivated to go out and actually take violent action against people but no I use gloves they're, they're not going to buy me <laughs> but there are people out there who do right that that rhetoric matters and and that's where you know all of this on the heels of Trump's rallies in which he talks you know in the past 2 weeks the 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 nationalist stuff the 
the you know talking about i mean there's been he and others have talked about soros specifically and democratic mobs and how you know it, it all of that matters so um i i the the fact that this was a laundry list of the people that trump targets repeatedly in his talk that fox news sort of demonizes is not coincidental, right? No one, somebody didn't come to these this conclusion on their own that these are the people who are responsible for um, the problems in America. So, it, it it this is again this is why it, it matters because people do get killed, right? Um, having said all of that, I do want to also say that I've seen a lot of people who have attacked or lashed out at Trump for his condemnation, right? So he came out today and said that this is. You know, well, you read part of the quote. Um, Despicable and um, yeah, that yeah, we have to come together yeah. as a country. And I've seen a lot of people who have said essentially, "Screw you!" Right? You're the single-handedly. You're more responsible for this than anybody else in American politics. Well, um, I, I think he does hold. You know, he is responsible for for at least part of this. But what we want is for him to say we should come together. We want people right. to start being more civil. So when he does that to attack him is like, then, then you're, you're just, mm -hmm. you know, where, how do we ever get better if we don't now, if he goes out to his rally tonight and returns to, you know, praising congressmen who, who beat up journalists and, you know, saying that, you know, looking the other way when Saudi Arabia does stuff, then, then critique him, but, but don't critique him for, for actually doing the right thing once. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. 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 It's, um, <laughs> I, I I mean yeah I I think he he's obviously responsible to to some extent for the actions of very unbalanced people. Having said that, I think this is a wider societal rhetorical problem that's coming from both sides. Less than a month ago, we had Ryson mailed to the White House and James uh, James Mattis and I think it was the head of the Navy or something at the Pentagon. I had to go six or seven pages back in Google to find that today. <laughs> like n nobody reported on it. Yeah. Uh, on top of how many congressmen got shot? How long ago was that? Five, six. Mm -hmm. One almost died. Like it, it's we're doing something to ourselves from both sides of the political spectrum that is abhorrent to at least who we should be as a people. I I, I think you can. Trump has has definitely been. A, a a negative force when it comes to that but you also you know you talk about you know taking the low road or taking the high road and it, we just keep kind of debasing ourselves instead of trying to make ourselves better which is more concerning than anything to me I, I, yeah, I don't know that's my opinion we're but, normalizing hate right I, I mean in some ways it comes down to that one thing I, my uh, area on this campus is leadership ethics and values. And I, and I find myself thinking, uh, where are the people at, at leadership levels who are prepared to say, going back to what Phil said about reaching across the aisle, uh, there are bigger things here than us. Mm -hmm. And there are more important things than whether we hold our office. Uh, and uh, this trafficking in horrifying language for the purpose of being reelected. Uh, boy, talk about a thing that is unethical, mm -hmm. uh, unprincipled, uh, lacks values. That's it. That's it. I, I keep coming back to the, the, you know, thinking about all the, all the 
tributes paid to John McCain, you know, a, a couple of months ago, and that that inner that exchange that came up over and over, in which the the woman talks to him about Obama is a Muslim or whatever. And John McCain, you know, there's lots of debate about how he responded and how should he respond. But the core of what he said essentially was that he's a good person and we disagree on ideas, right? And yeah. that, that that's the sort of leadership, right, that, that we right. need, right? We need people who are willing to say, look, I think that his ideas are stupid, but he's a good person and I'm going to engage with him and we're going to debate in good faith and we're going to, you know, fight it out on the ideas, not this sort of uh, demonization of, you know, this blanket statement of the person themselves, you know, the person is in fact evil because of what they believe. Mm -hmm. yeah, to just throw one thing in there, and I, I believe in civility in politics, I think we would, it would go a long way. I do think there's a distinction between being saying somebody's uncivil, and I think both sides have been uncivil. We could we could talk about examples of all of that. In some ways, I'm more okay with that. What I don't like is the delegitimization of the opposition, right? Yes. That's, that's where it gets dangerous. Yeah, that's right. a great point. If you want to show up at a restaurant and you want to heckle you know, a politician, you know, I wouldn't do that. I think that's silly and it's dumb, but it doesn't do any damage. Or, or I should say damage. It's, it's, not, as, it's not as dangerous. Careful, Bill. Well, it, it's, to me, it's not as dangerous as saying that the opposition, you know, totally delegitimizing right. the evil other, right? To me, that's another level. And again, I would prefer that we were not heckling people at restaurants. That's going to happen from time to time. I think the danger is when we say the other doesn't have a right to exist or to govern. That's a deeper level. I think that's what motivates individuals to engage in more extreme behavior. Mm -hmm. oh. Fair enough. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll move on. we got to jump to the INF. So the INF, so President Trump has announced that he's planning on withdrawing from withdrawing the United States from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces INF Treaty. This is a three-decade-old arms treaty, arms control treaty with Russia, signed by President Ronald Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev in December of 1987. The agreement prohibited Washington and Moscow from fielding ground-launched cruise missiles that could fly between 300 and 34,000 miles, 3,400 miles. The Trump administration points to the fact that Russia has clearly violated that agreement in recent years, something the Obama administration first pointed out in 2014. The departure provides an interesting debate over the strategic logic of this decision. The proponents of the decision point to the fact that the U.S. shouldn't be forced to comply with a treaty that Russia is clearly in violation of, and that withdrawing from this treaty will allow the U.S. to focus greater attention on China's missile buildup. Critics of the decision suggest that the action is likely to spark another arms race, enable a Russian military buildup in Europe, and hand an easy political victory to the Russians. Phil, you regularly play Scrabble with Gorbachev. What's your sense of the significance of this move and what we should think of the Trump administration pursuing it? Everybody likes that transition because they, they haven't heard the next one yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be so good. Uh, so, I mean, I, this is an example of, of a, a decision that I, I think has to be understood in a larger context of what Bush, uh, what, sorry, what the Trump administration is doing, which is sort of systematically going through an undoing um, international commitments that the U.S. has been involved in, right? We haven't even talked about how John Bolton is removing us from the International Postal Treaty or whatever, right? In which yeah. we, we, any, so uh, the, the, a lot of this just fits into this larger sense of America stepping back from its leadership role and this more isolationist um, mentality. I, I, I am I, more so than than the three of you, I think. Uh, I'm I'm unwilling to give 
Well, I, I, this is a good question. This is, I, would, I would be really interested to see how this decision was made and how much of this was, I think this fits into stuff that Trump is interested in, nuclear weapons, um, you know, kind of big picture sort of things. But I, I think a lot of the international relations stuff is stuff going on behind the scenes with John Bolton types. Um, I think they probably lined up in, on this particular one. I mean, there is, an, there is an argument to say, why do, should we stay a part of a treaty that the Russia is not abiding by? But the reason you stay a part of it is so that you can continue to critique and challenge and to point out the ways in which Russia is not living up to its international obligations, whereas this lets them off the hook. It worries me. Trump has already started talking about expanding our nuclear arsenal. We have close to half of the nuclear weapons in the world, something like I saw the statistic today, something like 7,500 of the 15,000 nuclear weapons in the world. We don't need more of them. Um, the, you know, an arms race that gets in the context of rising tensions with China and Russia is, is not likely to make the world a better place. I, I'm, I'm discouraged, but I'm, I'm open to being convinced otherwise. Anybody want to take the bait? <laughs> I do love taking this kind of bait. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I understand the the thought that we should stay part of the agreement uh in the sense to kind of call russia out on their bullshit but i feel like this is one of those particular situations that has dire consequences if you aren't having some sort of at least measured response to their unwillingness to stay part of the treaty uh while i think that you can talk about a russian military buildup they don't have the clout or economic um <clears throat> um, expansiveness is that they did during the Cold War on top of the fact that you have Russia that does have their nuclear arsenal and then China who is building up their arsenal as well so we have an equally powerful if not uh, greater threat than we did um, prior to the end of the Cold War so I think something needs to be done uh, I would have preferred that they said um the current contract is or contract um, treaty is uh, null and void. We're immediately sending negotiators to Moscow to negotiate a new treaty. If they don't go along with this, then we've exhausted our options and, and there will be consequences to that. Um, I, yeah, I, I personally don't see the, uh, the need to stay part of it just to stay a part of it. This is one of those issues that can get really technical really quick. So Tom pointed out complexity of these issues. So the reality here is Europe is no longer going to allow the United States to deploy missiles in Europe. They're reluctant to do so. Uh, same thing with Asia. So South Korea is, doesn't want us to have land-based missiles there. Japan doesn't want us to have land-based missiles there. We have said that's okay. We can do all of this through the air and through the water and through submarines. So there are some who are suggesting that pulling out of this treaty isn't doesn't get you much because you're not going to want to pursue or be able to pursue land-based missiles. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it will enable Russia to aggressively develop more missiles and target them at Europe. So, you know, I, I, I'm not opposed to withdrawing from a treaty to call Russia out. I just don't know if it improves our prospects for regulating both China and Russia's behavior. That's what concerns me the most. I don't know strategically if we're in a better position outside of this framework than they were than we were beforehand. Sure, in the current context, I'm sorry, you can go ahead. Um, I, I mean, in the current context of geopolitics right now, I would tend to agree. Mm -hmm. If you have a uh, a resurgent Russia on top of a uh, greatly expanding Chinese influence, 
that uh, has influence on the ground, I think sentiments in South Korea and Eastern Europe would change fairly rapidly in that situation. And again, Russia has their arsenal. Like, it's not that they don't. It's a matter of modernizing in some capacity what they have. I, I think that there's a a strategic mindset that having the ability to have these uh, missiles or this technology in places that are immediately adjacent to an opposition country says more than, well, we can do it. Um, we have the technology technically to do it, but I think it sends a, a more robust message. I was just going to uh, say one more thing about Bill's point. Uh, the president is a put up or shut up guy. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that part of the, the dynamic here is to South Korea, Japan, and Europe, put up or shut up. Mm-hmm. You don't want our missiles there? Build your own. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't want us defending you from Russia? Defend yourself. Um, it, 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 it certainly is a piece with a more isolationist approach, but I think there's, you know, he's a chess thumper. And, and there's a bit of chess thumping here, it seems to me, as to those who said, we don't want these sorts of weapons mm-hmm. on our territory. And, you know, in some ways, maybe that's the positive. They aren't on their uh, territory anymore. Uh, I, I don't know whether that we get an arms race with Russia and China, but we certainly maybe get some of these things off the ground in places where people don't want them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting I, to see. Yeah, I, I know we're out of time, but I, there's, I just want to also make one more sort of point out one more nuance to this, which is that treaties like laws work in multiple ways they they can stop people's behavior but they can also even when people break the laws it still alters their behavior and how they do it right so they they, they right, be, right. they're more secretive they're more subtle about it they you know there's there's ways it, it changes behavior so um when you just get rid of this law right you're you're opening the door so the there's an argument to be made that Russia's behavior was being affected, even though they weren't abiding by the treaty. They were still, um, you know, their their behavior was limited in some way. And just tossing it out the window does away with one of those checks. And there's an interesting logic that the U.S. is making, which is to say um, treaties don't limit behavior, which is why we need to get rid of this treaty so we can start behaving differently, right? Like we are, even in our actions, acknowledging that we are limited by this treaty, even if if we in Russia aren't, you know, abiding by it explicitly, it's, yeah. it's still affecting us. So, I think there's an argument to be made for keeping the treaty in place, even for those subtle impacts that it has on on the way countries behave and and approach it. So, this is a really smart podcast. I feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm learning a lot. This is this is good. All right, here we go. Final topic. Now, normally I don't read to I don't tell the listeners the title of our little <laughs> intros, but this this time I'm going to. So title of our next topic phil was born with a penis that makes him a boy no redos when it comes to gender says trump (laughs) so the trump administration is considering narrowly defining gender as a biological immutable condition determined by genitalia at birth this would be a dramatic move in an effort to roll back recognition and protections of transgender people under federal civil rights law a series of decisions by the obama administration loosened the legal concept of gender in federal programs, including in education and healthcare, uh, recognizing gender largely as an individual's choice and not determined by the sex assigned at birth. The Obama-era policy led to fights over bathrooms, dormitories, and other arenas where gender was once seen as a simple concept. Conservative, especially evangelical Christians, were particularly upset about the decision. 
In addition to being a red-hot political issue, this is likely to be a prominent legal battle. Defining sex and gender is a deeply complicated issue. Good thing we have four white guys here to break it all down for you. <laughs> In five minutes. That's right. <laughs> but in all seriousness, Tom, what, what legal issues do you see arising out of this? This, To me, this just screams, Dr. Chad was telling me today, federalism, the courts. I mean, this feels like this is going to work its way into that arena, right? I'm trying to decide how to respond to a topic <laughs> that begins with Phil was born with a penis. Uh, it, it's been many weeks since that's, I've been that's here. That's pure speculation. And, yeah. <laughs> well, yes, and, and uh, it could be at this very moment, 23andMe is working through my genetic pattern to decide whether there really are four white guys uh, at, at the table. This is rewriting civil rights litigation. And I, what I mean to say by this is not just this narrow question of do we change the definition for the purposes of Title IX, and that's the, the, the question right now. But we are moving, it seems to me, from a, a, a time where race, gender, and those things were treated as membership in a class uh, at which was directed some form of, of animus which could be corrected by the law. And the interesting question here, in some ways it looks a little like these asylum hearings is, what happens when we stop talking about classes of people who are the object of discrimination and have to because there isn't uh, definitional uh, territory that covers classes anymore, look to individual people making claims that they were treated differently because of what they individually are. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's not the way civil rights law has worked in the past. You'd say, uh, because I'm black, that is to say, part of a much larger class, I was denied employment, or I was denied college admission or something like that. Well, now if these things are fluid in terms of definition, they change the way lawyers need to think about civil rights litigation, because the argument isn't, I'm a member of a class that has been uh, traditionally discriminated against, and I can demonstrate that I have individually been discriminated in the same way. It's I've defined who I am, and because of the way I define myself, I am the object of discrimination. That feels to me like a different way of thinking about equal protection kinds of lawsuits and civil rights litigation. And it's gonna be really interesting to see how people line up on this question. Traditional feminists uh, have struggled a bit with, uh, as I understand it, um, the fluidity of gender definition, because in some ways it undermines what Title IX has done mm. heretofore. Uh, lawyers are going to have, as you might imagine, a field day, sure. uh, working through the definition, working through the ways it produces uh, uh, liability. I can think of lots of places where it will. Affirmative action programs change entirely when you stop talking about remedying past wrongs as to class mm -hmm. and talk about remedying an, uh, an immediate wrong as to an individual. So I think that's one point sure. I'd make. And then I'll just throw one other one out there that I really just love the idea of. You all know I'm sort of a Fourth Amendment lover and, and a privacy. Uh, how does one apply this definition without violating the Fourth Amendment? Mm -hmm. That is to say, if what we intend to do is to say we are going to find out what you are, irrespective of what you tell us you are, it requires government or some agent of government under Title IX to verify what you say. Uh, uh, this is a Fourth Amendment problem. For example, if you condition financial aid 
on uh, gender, uh, or even on sexual orientation, as Middlebury College does. Uh, they have an affirmative action program that gives points to students whose applications say that they are gay. How do you test that? And if you do, how do you not violate the fourth when you do test for it? Um, because they are essentially a government agent when they're distributing financial aid. So I, th this is going to be a bonanza for lawyers. It's going to be a thing that this group is going to talk about many times <laughs> over the coming years. Uh, and, and it's not just the narrow question of Title IX application. It's the much wider question of civil rights litigation. That hurt my head. <laughs> Phil, do you have? I don't. I'm. I'm. I'm out of ideas right now. <laughs> well, all right. So let me. Uh, then I'll throw another one yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the court uh, heard a petition this week uh, to hear the follow-up case to Masterpiece. Hmm. Masterpiece, you'll recall, we talked about at the end of last uh, term. This is the Baker. Mm -hmm. Um, here's a case coming from the West Coast that takes out the two big problems in Masterpiece. Uh, you remember that what the court did in Masterpiece was a very narrow ruling. They said the Colorado Commission was infected with uh, animus toward, and clearly they were. I mean, when you say that yeah. Christians are Nazis, uh, this seems to me to be uh, a, a straightforward case. But second, that because he had custom and non-custom things in his store, the waters were muddy about what it was he was denying and not. The case coming to the court now uh, does not have the animus dimension, and it does not have the, uh, uh, the mixed message problem, because all this cake shop makes is custom stuff. So what I'm after here is, here's this wider dimension of who are people, what do we owe them, under what circumstances should government compel our behavior about them, uh, and, and the court's going to get another run at this. It's not directly on the question of definition of gender, but it is certainly on the question of how as a society are we trying to navigate mm -hmm. the really difficult issues that rearranging the ways we think about who people are in terms of their identity are putting in front of us. Do you think the court... See, it worked. I no, got to no, no, fill no. in. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you were talking, it made me think about your earlier point about Congress, right? And and whether the, the democracy, those democratic institutions, the Congress and the president should be addressing these things or the court. Are these matters for the court or should we let these play out in states? Oh, you know what I'm going to say to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A, we need a rule. B, it has to have a definition mm -hmm. because absent one, you cannot make thoughtful judgments. Which throws some responsibility back on Congress to that's do that. Where I, that yeah. That's number three. Congress has to go back to Title IX and say, mm -hmm. here's the definition. And this is, I recognize politically it's difficult, uh, but, but procedurally it's not. This should not be the court defining these things for us in an anti-majoritarian or an a-majoritarian way. Nor should it be the president via executive order. Congress should go back to Title IX and say, Times have changed, the conversation is different, mm -hmm. and we've got to either expand, contract, or rewrite the law. This, it seems to me, is, is the most straightforward part of this. The problem is, what's the definition? Because what it is right now, at least uh, in this context, is the objective rule is the subjective definition. Right. I am what I think I right. am, mm -hmm. or say that I am, uh, or, or allege that I am. Yeah. Uh, Sex That's become, not a definition. And right. sex becomes gender, and those things mm -hmm. are very distinct. That's right. Yeah. yeah. No, this yeah. is, this, oh, yeah. there's so much potential here. It's, it's a fascinating topic. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, this was fun, Nick. Wow. This was good. Mentally exhausted. Yeah, was, we went to, well, we're almost an hour and a half. Oof. <laughs> That's good. Hello. That's good. Um, yeah, really good. Thanks for being here, Tom. Yeah, I thanks, always Tom. appreciate oh, that. Oh, that's great. You know, I love being here. Um, yeah, if you guys like the podcast, which I don't know how why you wouldn't like that. You're probably a communist, you know? If you're listening an hour and a half in, you like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, follow us on uh, Twitter at Barstool Paul, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try and review you can find on Untapped that you can download on iOS and Android. Uh, so look for Barstool Politics on there. The podcast... Uh, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, uh, definitely iTunes. Review us, share us through there. Um, we appreciate the support. Uh, and like we said at the beginning, uh, definitely check out Predict It, which if you missed it, uh, Predict It is a uh, political prediction market where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Um, super fun, especially in the run-up to the midterms. Uh, Barstool Politics listeners who use the promo link uh, when opening up a new account will receive a $20 match on their first deposit. I should say up to a $20 match in their first deposit. So if you open up an account, a $20 account, they will match that $20. Um, so $40 to try uh, Predict It. Um, just use the promo link, uh, predictit.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20 uh, and get your free money. Um, and we'll put that out on social. We do pretty much every week. So be on the lookout for that. Anything else, guys? No, this is great. Awesome. Tom, thanks again. My pleasure. Hopefully see you again soon. Bye. Cheers. Cheers. Shut up, shut up, and sit down.